This is an emergency podcast. This is an emergency podcast. What's up, everyone, and welcome to this emergency edition of the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon. Now, the Leaders' Summit on Climate that was organized by the Biden administration just wrapped up a few hours ago. And since that virtual meeting was convened to tackle the climate emergency, we thought we'd respond by convening an emergency podcast. I invited Justin Gertis, Senior Correspondent for Energy Monitor, to join me in breaking down the key takeaways from the summit. But before this emergency podcast turns on the lights and sirens, I want to say a special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, EDF Renewables. EDF Renewables is a leading renewable energy developer in North America with 20 gigawatts of wind, solar, and storage projects of all sizes throughout the United States, Canada, and Mexico. EDF Renewables. Energy your way. Once again, I'm joined today by Justin Gerdes, Senior Correspondent for Energy Monitor. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm um, great. Thanks for uh, the invitation to join you today. I'm glad to have you. I understand it's been a busy week for you. You got your second vaccine yesterday. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Probably better than after the, uh, the first shot. Well, I appreciate you being a trooper. Uh, look at you kind of monitoring the action in Washington and uh, staying upright after your second shot. So that's great. Uh, the whole purpose of this quick podcast is to try and get quick reaction and your key takeaways from the summit, any, any surprises and things like that. So, so we're just going to get into it. From your perspective, what were the key takeaways from the last couple of days in Washington? Yeah, I mean, for me, there were several. I would say probably the first thing that jumps out for me is Biden is, is serious. So, you know, there was some debate, especially in the, the presidential campaign, about just how much Biden was into climate action. Uh, you know, he was not progressive's favorite by any stretch during the campaign. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie were, were the favorite among especially young people in that campaign. But since the election and especially in the transition, it's become really clear that Biden talks now like a, a man converted on climate change. You know, I've been really impressed as a journalist who covers this space for a long time about the people that Biden has recruited into government, you know, from his cabinet down to the, the staffing level people that, you know, energy journalists know and write about these dozens and dozens of young people who are experts in climate policy who are, have joined the, the government. So to me, it says Biden is serious. And, you know, the it's always said that, you know, the, the, the most precious commodity for a U.S. president is their time. You know, you have four short years, maybe eight years. Uh, what you choose to spend your time on really says something. And the fact that Biden spent pretty good chunks of two days at this summit, the countless hours that his senior staff devoted to the summit tells me it's really a priority for the White House. So that, that's one big takeaway for me is just Biden is serious about climate action. A second one I would say is that the nudge worked. You know, there was some question about just how effective this summit would be. The White House was pretty careful about downplaying expectations in the lead up to the summit, you know, trying to say that, you know, perhaps don't expect too many blockbuster announcements, even though it was clear that behind the scenes, uh, especially the, the envoy John Kerry was doing really uh, ardent work to, to lobby his colleagues and counterparts around the world. But obviously, the, the, nudge, the nudge worked. I mean, we got some pretty ambitious uh, pledges made at the summit or uh, in the lead up to the summit. 
so just the, the convening power of the U.S. worked in this case. And I'd say maybe a last one is just that it's clear the U.S. is still the, the indispensable nation on climate. You know, it was abundantly clear in just about every opening remark from a world leader or business official uh, who spoke over these two days, just the, the relief, the palpable relief that the U.S. was back and, and reengaged in the climate fight. So you mentioned how Biden has done a great job of shoring up the progressive base when it comes to climate, you know, not just with this summit, but with some of his other proposals since he took office. But what about the international community? You know, they've watched the political pendulum swing back and forth and back and forth here in the U.S. Do you think the last couple of days has done any good in terms of rebuilding trust on that front? I do. I mean, our counterparts overseas, they're, they're much more uh, savvy and aware of our politics than, than we probably realize. So, you know, they obviously know the, the political hurdles that Joe Biden's going to face. You know, the very narrow um, majority that he has in, in Congress at the moment. He has basically, you know, two years to get much legislative action done, you know, at most, unless Democrats retain both houses in Congress in 2022. But I also think that his foreign counterparts are aware of the time and dedication that the administration already put into this effort and having key people like John Kerry and Gina McCarthy, the national climate advisor, taking up both the, the domestic, uh, in her case, and the foreign parts of the portfolio. Uh, sends a signal to those from our counterparts that even though the domestic politics are going to be challenging, frankly, there's really senior, experienced, seasoned people in these key jobs in Kerry and McCarthy who will do everything they can, pull every administrative lever to try to get as much done administratively as we can over the next four years. And now you mentioned the nudge, you know, the nudge to some of those international partners. One of the key headlines coming out of the summit is Biden's targeting a 50 to 52% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Um, we saw a whole slew of, of similar you know, targets announced either in the buildup to the summit or at the summit. Which ones of those targets or those announcements caught your eye? Yeah, I would have to say one of the really big one, one of the big ones for me was the announcement by uh, South Korea that they were going to end overseas coal finance. So, you know, Asia uh, has been one of the last holdouts in providing finance for new coal-fired power stations. China, Korea, Japan, uh, there's been a lot of advocate uh, activist effort in that regard to crack down on uh, the overseas coal lending by those countries in particular. So at least in the the feedback that I saw from activists who, who watched this space really closely, they were really encouraged to get that announcement from South Korea. And one of the things I saw was China is kind of pump the brakes on, you know, announcing anything huge, but they're kind of sticking to a previously announced goal of net zero emissions by 2060. So a question I have for you is, which goal do you think is more likely to be met? The U.S. shooting for 50 to 52% reduction by 2030 or China hitting net zero by 2060? <laughs> I'm torn on this one. You know, the, uh, the Chinese obviously have a, uh, a more enviable political system in, as far as getting something done urgently uh, at the time that we we have to act on climate, uh, it's much easier for, for China to, uh, within its own context and system, to turn directives in, into action. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I totally agree. It just feels like this is one of those times when China's political structure can be a real benefit and help it stay on track. You know, once the party decides to do something, they can really rock and roll. So do you see that as a factor too? But I also... 
if I can, you know, argue both sides, I also tend to agree with, uh, I heard remarks from, from Envoy Carey and advisor McCarthy uh, over the last two days, pretty bullish on the U.S. target, even though, you know, most experts agree it's going to be an exceedingly heavy lift to meet, but they were both bullish that we might even, the U.S. might even uh, exceed the targets, the 2030 reduction targets. And, you know, as somebody who, who follows this space closely for quite a while, I'm, I'm one of those who is, tends to think that once decarbonization really takes hold in the United States, it's going to go faster than, than most people think. So I'm thinking in particular of the transportation space. You know, transportation now is the, the single largest wedge of, of U.S. emissions, about 28%. And there's obviously a problem with private vehicles in the United States uh, still burning fossil fuels. But I'm really convinced that we're at a really pivotal couple of years here where the cost curve is coming down for lithium-ion batteries. Most experts who follow the space think that it's going to be mid-2020s to reach price parity upfront for private vehicles, comparing a, a fossil fuel vehicle and a, and a battery electric vehicle. I think once that happens and once people get the experience of driving an electric vehicle, you know, I'm on my third uh, LEAF. I would never buy a, a gas-powered car at this point. I think most people are going to feel the same once they do so that you know, it's it's a better, basically a better vehicle. And once they realize that it's not only by then, you feel a few years cheaper to buy, but especially, especially cheaper to operate and to run, I really think it's going to snowball and decarbonization is going to go faster in transportation than I think most people expect. Yeah, I hear you on the car front. I'm a truck guy and my dream truck is a Toyota Tacoma and I was just about to buy one a few months ago, but then I pumped the brakes on it because I heard about some more electric vehicles coming out. And I was like, you know... Like a Toyota truck is like a 20-year purchase, right? <laughs> like I can't justify that. So I'm going to wait, you know, pick up an EV when, uh, when the time's right. We'll be right back. EDF Renewables' purpose is to build a net zero energy future with electricity and innovative solutions and services to help save the planet and drive well-being and economic development. We're committed to providing future generations with the means to power their lives in the most economic, environmental, and socially responsible ways possible. We understand the importance of managing energy integration in a way that also enables clean energy projects to improve the electric grid. Our tailor-made solutions can solve energy challenges facing our customers, no matter the size or complexity. EDF Renewables. Energy your way. And now, back to our conversation. So, back to the summit. So, were there any surprises that you just didn't see that coming? You know, and again, beyond the the target and you know, the goal, emissions goal targets that were announced, just anything that kind of took place at the, at the summit, you know, what surprised you? Yeah, I'd say probably the big one for me was uh, perfect attendance by the invited leaders. You know, there was uh, a bunch of chatter in the days leading up to the summit about, you know, would President Xi uh, attend? Would President Putin attend? But in the end, I mean, they got all 40 invited world leaders to attend over the, the two days. So I think, again, it just speaks to what I mentioned earlier. It's just the, the power of the U.S. as a convener, probably the only country outside of, you know, a, a U.N. General Assembly context that could get these many leaders to come over two days to speak on climate. Yeah, I, I was, in addition to that, I was surprised by, I shouldn't say surprised, I was impressed by the list of speakers, even from the private sector. And it goes to show, as you were saying earlier, that They've got a plan for this and they're ready to roll. I mean, it's it's not a campaign trail talk and then get in office and ignore it. Lonnie Stevenson from IBEW is there. 
I know Jack Allen from Proterra was there uh, talking about you know the buses ain't going. I thought that was that was one of my favorite ones when President Biden told him, "Hey, I used to drive a bus. Like I want to drive one of yours." And I'm like, I'm trying to wrap my mind around the idea of Joe Biden driving an electric bus with a bus full of kids <laughs> riding along. I'd love to see that, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. Anyway, so then any other memorable things? You know, whether it wasn't a surprise, but something you just think is significant that transpired in the last couple of days? Yeah, I, I, I latch on to one of the things you mentioned is just the the appearances by the, the labor leaders that you mentioned. So there was the head of the Steelworkers Union, the head of IBEW, the electricians. And it was really clear that they were overjoyed to have the reception that they now have in the White House. It's clear that the, the feeling is mutual from Biden. So uh, one of the, the big takeaways for me is that it's it's a, such a big part of the White House pitch. If you read any statement that comes from the White House on climate and energy at this point, it's littered with references to good paying middle class union jobs. So that's one takeaway is just the, the match there between uh, union uh, leaders and, and the White House. Uh, another big one for me memorable was uh, the new energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm. She was uh, a word I would use effervescent. You know, she was just obviously this is clearly a, a job she loves. It's like her lifetime career uh, job. You know, she's been a governor, but uh, it really seems like she's in her element now uh, shepherding the Department of Energy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Every time I see her uh, make a media appearance, even, you know, before the summit, like she's just a home run. I mean, she's the person you want out there, you know, selling this this plan. So. And then I do want to come back to, you mentioned, you know, the jobs is a key part of, of the pitch. Some pushback, not necessarily the last couple of days, but a little bit about complaints. I would say that the jobs that are being touted, so many of them are construction that were, you know, temporary. And that's a, that's a complaint, right? I laugh at that because I'm like, well, you know, we build roads and bridges and those are temporary construction jobs. We don't, we're not going to stop doing that. What's your take on folks in the industry and how they can kind of push back on that or, you know, just kind of, you know, neutralize that talking point because, you know, it's true, but it doesn't mean those jobs are unimportant. Yeah, I, I do hear that a lot. You know, I'm actually doing some reporting on, on that topic now. I mean, it, it's difficult, right? You've got incumbent industries or incumbent sectors in especially the nuclear industry or the oil and gas industry that have been around, you know, decades longer than the renewable energy, energy industries have. And, you know, there's just a lot more uh, built in political power. They're very established. They have, um, in some cases, you know, tax breaks for the industries that are uh, well entrenched. So I think it's, it's, it's hard to make an apples to apples comparison about industries that are at, you know, different starting points. I will say, though, that it's starting to, to change. You know, the, I mentioned the power of the, you know, potential marriage there between the Biden administration and labor. So, you know, I think one of the real bright spots is, especially for, for large scale uh, renewable energy, a trend of adopting more agreements to use union labor. So, you know, where I am here in California, it's pretty standard now that especially large scale uh, wind and solar projects use uh, union labor. You know, it's partly our politics. You know, there's prevailing wage provisions in California. Uh, the building trades are very strong here. But, you know, it's it's also being established in other contexts, too. So, you know, one I'm thinking of in particular was an agreement reached in November of last year between uh, Orsted, the, the big Danish offshore wind developer, and uh, building trades, the national building trades. So they, they basically reached uh, an MOU, an understanding 
that Orsted for the many projects hopes to build on the East Coast offshore wind uh, that they'll use uh, union labor on those projects. So I think it's probably a problem. It does exist. It's hard to make uh, apples to apples comparisons. You know, a rooftop solar installer is not going to make as much right now as, you know, a an oil and gas field worker or a, a technician at a nuclear power station. But I think given time, given passage of things like the the PRO Act potentially in Congress, which would make it easier to unionize, I think we'll reach parity sooner. So you mentioned the transportation sector as being prime for decarbonization, you know, electric vehicle adoption and things like that. And obviously based on the name of this podcast, we got a lot of listeners who work in renewables. So are there any areas like that that are ready to take off in say the next two or three years? And help you know push toward achieving all these big emissions targets that we're hearing about this week. So I would say it depends on what happens with uh, his jobs package. You know, it depends on what happens with the the American Jobs Plan. What it looks like once lawmakers in in Congress get done writing detailed provisions. But you have to be encouraged about the direction of where that's headed. You know, just in the proposal that was released by the White House recently, there's a 10-year extension of tax credits, for example, for renewable energy. So, you know, it would help to take away some of the the boom-bust cycle that's tended to happen with uh, the U.S. and the federal tax credits for development of uh, offshore wind or wind and solar projects. So I think that the certainty of the longer-term window for some of those provisions will really help solidify the gains that have already been started over, over recent years. Another thing I would point to is, um, you know, I was talking about the legacy sectors. You know, one of the provisions in that jobs plan was trying to help potentially transition some workers in oil and gas to other, either other jobs in the space or to other jobs in the energy industry. And one of the provisions uh, I'm thinking of in particular is uh, plugging abandoned oil and gas wells. You know, there was $16 billion proposed to plug hundreds of thousands of abandoned oil and gas wells across the country that are you know, spewing methane and potentially leaking uh, into groundwater. So it's things like that where we could have a real economic jolt and find a way to, to transition some workers also. Circling back, you mentioned Secretary Granholm. It was just kind of her effervescence kind of came through uh, the past couple of days. Were there any other appearances that kind of inspired you in that same way? Yeah. So, you know, the... One of the things I will say is the White House did a good job of not having an entirely U.S. centric schedule over the two days. You know, so the one speaker I'm thinking of from this morning was the uh, the CEO of Easy Solar, a, a decentralized solar energy provider in Sierra Leone and Liberia. Just a, a really smart, engaging woman who is doing a great job. It sounds like of employing young people in Sierra Leone and Liberia to, to deploy off-grid solar in really critical energy access space where people don't have access, frankly, to any energy services at the moment, but uh, her company can, can close that bridge and, uh, in a context where they may never get grid service, uh, they can still have uh, clean energy access. Speaking of, of young people, I, w- I was impressed by uh, Shia Bastida from... Fridays for Future. I think she's like 17, 18 years old, one of the younger activi- activists yeah. uh, from Mexico. And, and mainly on that, I just I just think it's great to see, even though she's been doing her thing for a few years now, it's great to see more young faces. I mean, I think right now when you ask anyone around the world, they're like, oh, Greta Thunberg, you know, 
she's like the one face, you know? So it's kind of nice. Okay. Hey, there, there is a, an army of young people. It's not just one. So, and she was absolutely. And yeah, just if I could add to that, that I, the thought I had, you're right. She, not only was she a, a great poised young speaker, but clearly shows how the, the politics on climate have shifted. I mean, I think, you know, if you listen to her words, they were very pointed, very direct. It's hard to me to think of a previous administration, Republican or Democrat, having a young activist like that speak in such a high profile setting with the the backing of the White House. Yeah, I got to admit, I was I was surprised. I mean, I was watching yesterday morning and then and then I guess I just missed her name on the agenda that had been circulated, mm-hmm. obviously. And yeah, I saw her pop up and like I said, I'm familiar with her from some of her other appearances. I was like, oh my gosh, they put her on, you know, that kind of deal. So I totally agree in terms of, you know, kudos, I would say, to the organizers and the Biden administration for, you know, giving her that platform. And yeah, like you said, she she pulled no punches. She kind of came out swinging and was just really telling all of us old folks, you know, to get the job done or else uh, her generation will. So any other stuff from the summit you want to touch on? Yeah, I'll circle back to one of your favorite moments was one of my favorite moments also, and that was... Biden breaking in after the remarks by the the CEO from Proterra, Jack Allen, and saying, uh, which I'd never frankly heard before, that he used to drive a school bus and would love to drive a, a Proterra electric school bus. But I'm, I'm latching onto that because, um, so I, I wrote a piece for Energy Monitor earlier this year. Uh, my boss had asked me to to pick two companies that I thought were really poised for breakout growth. Uh, during the, the Biden administration, you know, giving context, obviously, of the of the trends and what had been proposed by the White House. So I, I picked uh, Proterra and I picked Orsted. And it's just really fascinating to see. So, I, you know, it, what must have gone on behind the scenes to get one of those coveted speaking uh, slots by the business leaders and the fact that, that the Proterra CEO was one of them. It's interesting. They're a very politically uh, savvy, connected company. You know, Jennifer Granholm was on their board before she joined uh, the energy department. You know, they're a big part of their business is, or at least it hasn't historically been getting support from the federal government to deploy electric buses, either for transit agencies or for school buses. So it's just, um, it's just one to watch that I think that they're, they're expanding their presence. They recently went public. They, started out as a purely uh, transit bus company, but now they're going into things like delivery vans and school buses and heavy construction machinery. So it's interesting to see that it seems like the, the White House kind of has their finger on the pulse of where the market is going and, and some of the, the promising companies to watch too. Yeah, now obviously that you're pretty clairvoyant with that piece you wrote for, for mm-hmm. Energy Monitor. What are the stuff you got coming down the pipeline? Anything, uh, any special series or anything like that at, at Energy Monitor you want to preview or give us, you know, get our listeners warmed up and ready to read whenever it comes out? Sure. So myself and my colleagues, we have a big package of stories coming up, kind of touching on what we some talked about earlier, which is um, clean energy and, and workers, clean energy and labor. So, you know, I'm our, our U.S. correspondent, so I'm going to be writing about and a little bit of that tension we talked about earlier of, how do you handle the transition for workers? How do you address some of those concerns about disparity in wages? But we'll be taking the global context. That's one of the great things about Energy Monitor is we, I think, do a real service by providing a, a really global perspective for readers. You know, we have a team based in Brussels. Uh, we have writers in, based in the UK. 
but we also get contributions from from people in Africa and Asia in Latin America. So um, we're doing that big series kind of to coincide with May 1, with International Labor Day. Uh, so we'll have a big package of stories coming uh, in early May to watch for. Well, I couldn't agree more with your comment about the global perspective that Energy Monitor brings. Any listeners out there, that's at energymonitor.ai. Go there. Just tremendous work. Uh, a lot of, like I said, global perspectives, but jobs, technologies, things like that. So you and your team do an awesome job. Well, Justin, that's about all the time we have right now. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Like I said, especially day after your COVID uh, vaccine, I appreciate you coming in and, and being a good trooper to, to do this for us. So thank you very much. Thank you. It was uh, an honor to be here and uh, really appreciated the invitation. That's our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed this emergency podcast, breaking down the key takeaways from the Leaders Summit on Climate. Join me for our next episode where I'll be talking with Joseph Tripke from Liam Research, and we'll be dissecting a controversy that's starting to heat up in California about net energy metering as it relates to rooftop solar. I hope you listen then. Once again, we'd like to thank our exclusive sponsor, EDF Renewables. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to SmartBrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of SmartBrief, a future company. <laughs>